Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. In our first week together, we started spending time with mindfulness of sound and letting the ears be receptive to sound. And there's a deep lesson in there, which is that you can be open to what's happening without interfering so much. And that we can also start to experience our bodies as more receptive uh, with less doing energy. Doing energy is so important, but so is being energy, as everybody here knows already. Um, So that's one. Second, we then explored how when you can be open to the movement of sound, you can then be open to the movement of breathing. And we looked at so many different mindfulness practices around breathing, if you remember. We looked at mindfulness of the breath in the belly, mindfulness of breath behind the belly, mindfulness of breath in the nostrils, mindfulness of breath in the aperture of the nostrils, mindfulness of breath just outside the aperture of the nostrils. We did the um, four count breathing, do you remember that? Noticing four breaths, letting your mind wander, coming back again for four breaths. It's a lot of techniques. So those were the two ways we explored mindfulness of the body. And then we also explored how when we're mindful of the body, something else happens where we start to notice feeling tone, vedana, that some experiences are, sorry, that all experiences, I use the term bottleneck, bottleneck through um, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I hope that uh, during our time off, so to speak, that you were able to notice that sometimes where you were sitting. Like a really good time to notice it is when there's resistance to sitting. And you get into like all your theories about resistance to sitting, and then it all boils down to, oh, unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Those are the first two foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, and if you ever go deeper into this, the Buddha offers six different practices for mindfulness of the body, but our focus in this context is mindfulness of breathing. The second foundation of mindfulness that we've been working with is mindfulness of feeling tone. So being mindful when there's pleasant and when there's unpleasant. And although you might think, God, that is so mechanical or that is so conceptual, fine. 
It's conceptual. And try the lens on and see what happens. Notice what happens when you're in an experience where the unpleasant is intolerable and you've forgotten that it's unpleasant and you're deep in the cognitive realm determining how everybody should change. <laughs> and you really shouldn't be living in Vancouver. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Then, um, while we were doing that, we explored how this map of uh, sequencing mindfulness practice is set against a larger context, which is shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha are practices that we use to calm down, and vipassana is the practice that we use to investigate. When these teachings leave India and go to China, they needed to create terms um, to describe shamatha and vipassana. And the pictographs that they use to describe them are stopping for shamatha. So we, we call it calming down and settling. Stopping. Stopping. And the term they uh, cultivated to translate, um, that they landed on to translate uh, Vipassana is looking or seeing. And I love these two together as a frame for what we're trying to do in practice is stop and look, stop and see. And as we're going to explore at the end of this week, this is going to be the Buddha's um, third noble truth. Stop and see. Stop and look. Look what's there. So just to review, shamatha is slowing down our agitated mind and body so we can have some clarity and some stability. Vipassana is about looking uh, in that space of clarity and stability to see what's there. Uh, in other words, using our calm mind, and I mean relative calmness. If I say calmness and you're thinking like, you know, absolute calmness, then you're never going to get anywhere. It's just going to be circles. Just relative calmness, like right now, relative calm. <coughs> Let me tell you an old story some of you might have heard before. Dizang saw Fayan all dressed in traveling clothes with straw sandals and a staff and a pack on his back. And Dizang said, where are you going? And Fayan answered, on a pilgrimage. Dizang said, uh, what's the purpose of pilgrimage? And Fayan said, I don't know. And Dizang said, not knowing is most intimate. So the first thing I like about these stories is it's not a teacher-student situation. It's just two people in the mindfulness training program. And one of them's got their North Face bag on, and they're getting ready to go wander um, on Grouse Mountain for who knows how long. Maybe through some valleys to different monasteries up there that we don't know about yet. And... Um, <clears throat> 
their friend says, Carmen, where are you going? And uh, Matthew, Matthew says to Carmen, Carmen, where are you going? Carmen says, on a pilgrimage. Like with a bit of confidence, I'm going on a pilgrimage. And Matthew says, uh, what's the point? Like what's the point of a pilgrimage? And Carmen says, I don't know. And Matthew says, not knowing is the most intimate. It's beautiful, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, when Center of Gravity existed in Toronto, we had this really beautiful pamphlet we would give students about how to practice. And that story was on the front of the pamphlet. And I've always thought that is like the guiding story of practice. And I've never listened to any of my podcasts, but I'm sure if you listen to my podcasts, I probably can't get through two without talking about intimacy. <clears throat> When Matthew says to Carmen, not knowing is most intimate, um, what he's pointing to is having a mind that's not already made up, a non-addictive mind, a mind that's not made up already, a mind that's open to investigating and curious about what's happening, curious about what's happening, seeking, like interested, but not with any expectations. Like, she has, Carmen has the backpack. She has her shoes. She's made a decision. She's going on a pilgrimage, right? She's going to investigate. Um, but she doesn't know what she's going to come across. She has no idea. So, uh, when we all sit together, I hope that you can feel this that you might have different ideas of how your time's going, or maybe you have expectations around this course, or maybe your mind is really consumed with something that you've been obsessed with lately. Um, but I'm going to encourage you to sit still and just open your mind to this not knowing mind so that you come back into your body so you can be ready for whatever experience happens in this moment. Because sometimes we're obsessed about something, and it's not really what's happening in this moment. It's just a momentum of obsession that we keep reinforcing, so then it becomes a deeper obsession, because we keep reinforcing it. So, before you can let go of uh, prejudice, and before you can let go of ruminating, um, we have to know it's there. And that's why uh, I'm a bit of a stickler for sticking with the first two foundations of mindfulness. I really think if you can master the basics, the practice really uh, gets deeper more efficiently. You won't injure yourself on your practice. Because otherwise, your preconceptions are just carrying on unconsciously in everything you do, but you can't see it. Because you haven't gone back to, are you breathing? What's happening in the body? Is this pleasant or unpleasant? Sometimes I think meditation training is like uh, training in responsiveness. You're a first responder 
to the matters of your own heart. And you're able to respond. If your response, though, is always coming from the knowing place, it's not like, it's not, I wouldn't call that responsiveness. It's habitual. So we want to discover in us, I hope, by the end of this course, um, an interest in this natural radiance of the heart that we all have, and also responsiveness. First here. I just had a random question, and maybe I don't, I don't know why I walked in it, but I'm curious about when we label something pleasant or unpleasant, yeah. what in that labeling sets you free to drop into something like what, because when you're, and, and I'm kind of trying to think of an ego or part of the brain that mm. like tends to hold you in that space of, and by labeling it, what's the shift? Can someone answer? What, ha what happens when you label it, what's the shift? So yeah. I look at it, um, if I'm up late and I can't sleep, and I write a to-do list of the things that are going on in my mind, I'm able to just let it go, okay, I won't forget about it, it's there, I've acknowledged it, and now let's focus on something else, I'll come back to that mm. later. And so I kind of see it the same way, like, yes, nagging shoulder, you're unpleasant, I hear you, but I'm not focusing on you right now, I'm going to come back to you later, I'm not ignoring you, so it can just I see, be less loud. Yeah. The, the way I've been thinking about this a lot lately that I find helpful is imagine you have a three-year-old boy, which I just happen to have. <laughs> and one of the things that three-year-old boys really need are boundaries because um, they say how you create boundaries for kids between three and five determines how a lot of the teen years go. Okay. Yeah. So, so I really heard this advice and I thought, that really makes sense. Because at, between three and five, they're really testing the parents to see how strong the boundaries are. So if you're a loving parent to your three-year-old, um, sometimes you have to say no. Okay. So I've been thinking, imagine that you parent your mind like this. So you imagine your mind is a three-year-old that you love, and once in a while they're like way off, and you're like, no, <laughs> come back again. And one of the ways you, so one of the things that happens, you see sometimes the reason why we wander way off is there's something unpleasant going on. And so you have to be a good parent, a good caregiver for your mind, and be like, I love you, no. <laughs> yeah. I want ice cream. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Though it never ends. What you want never ends. So you have to sometimes just go, I love you. It, the I love you has to be in there somehow. I love you, no. <laughs> and, the, and the labeling helps with that. Yeah. I had a question. Yes. Just about the dopamine. So this is kind of a concept that is kind of vague and one that I've been, I guess, not 100% clear on, but um, is it more or less when we learn to pay direct attention, yeah. outside of our thinking mind, there is that sense of openness, and that's where kind of 
it's like the beginner's mind. It's the beginner's mind yeah. and the don't know mind. Same thing. Same mind. Yeah. Because it's more open. Yeah. Not lost in story. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> and the person who popularized the term don't know mind was a Korean teacher who, um, um, he, he was actually the teacher who ended up teaching like John Kabat-Zinn and Trudy Goodman and Jack Engler who wrote the article you wrote. This, there was a Korean Zen teacher who moved to Boston, to Cambridge, in the mid-60s, named Sun Sun. And he worked at a laundromat. And some people started discovering him, and he started teaching some people how to sit. And that was the beginning of uh, Korean Zen for Westerners in North America. And, um, but he had a very bad uh, pronunciation of English terms, because he never learned English properly. So uh, he called it donut mind, because it sounds like don't don't know donut. So he called it donut mind, which is a nice, very Zen kind of like thing, right? So I always think of that with donut mind. So um, this morning during the meditation, I offered a slightly different uh, uh, technique, which um, is going to be our transition to mindfulness of thinking, which is uh, when you sit. You relax when you exhale. And when you inhale, you let the inhale still you. Do you remember that? Yeah. So I encourage you to try that on a little bit. Um, and um, <clears throat> that's a good practice for just starting to see the interaction between breathing and the mind. Because as soon as I say let the inhale still you, you'll feel that. And also, you'll check in and you'll see. Am I still? Um, Can you say that one more time? When you exhale, relax. Think of it like a, like a top that's spinning. That's the exhale. And then on the inhale, it stops it. It stops it. Um, So, after we notice the breath, we're noticing pleasant and unpleasant. And just to kind of end that summary, when you notice uh, pleasant and unpleasant, I'm leaving neutral out, what it's doing is it's giving you information. It's giving you really basic information about what's closer to the heart than like what cognition does. And that information, to bring it back to karma, is what allows you to make better decisions about how to move more towards wholeness and healing rather than um, repeating the past. So in a tradition that doesn't refer so much on deities and external reference points, your body counts for a lot. We get a lot of information from the body. So you have to know for yourself what's true. You have to know for yourself what's real. No teacher can give you that. You have to know for yourself what brings you real pleasure and what brings you real freedom. And how does that freedom relate to the freedom of others? You might have superficial freedom. 
but it doesn't relate to anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's blown me away that that's actually the most important part. Like the other will take care of itself. The pause happens. Yeah. 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 Once you see that there are pleasant and unpleasant experiences, you start to see this other thing that is a little bit hard to grasp because we don't want to admit it's true, but that a lot of our unhappiness depends on our mental states, depends on the state of our heart. And that there's pleasant and unpleasant that doesn't have that much to do with your body. Like you could go take an afternoon off work, go swimming, read a book, and then take yourself out for a really nice meal. And then go look at the sunset. And if the state of your heart is in a poor, down, unhappy place, none of those things will bring that much pleasure. They sound like the perfect things. Oh, I went swimming. I didn't go to work this afternoon. All of those things will um, not make you happy. Um, so this is where sometimes I think it's good I think as Marina mentioned this a few times the first week which is um, remembering that in many cultures when they say mind they mean heart like if you go to Thailand and you ask someone about their mind they'll gesture here so the third foundation of mindfulness we call mindfulness of the mind the word is chitta. It could be consciousness, attention. Sometimes I call it attitude, mindfulness of one's attitude. Um, but I think we can also say mindfulness of the heart. I think that's perfectly. Sometimes I call it mindfulness of mental states. And certain times of the month, I call it mindfulness of moods. <laughs> the interesting thing about chitta the Sanskrit term chitta is when it, gets, it goes to China, the pictograph that represents chitta is a pictograph of a heart. And if you've ever seen that image, it's really cool. It's all these lines that are in the shape that's kind of circular, and then there's like a movement inside of it. It's really beautiful. So I understand this third foundation as noticing the quality of one's mind and heart. Noticing the quality of one's attitude. And the instructions really about how as you begin to get still, um, you start to see deeper qualities in your heart that you didn't see before. You start getting more information about what's really going on in your heart. And sometimes when you sit still and you start looking at that, not even sitting still, but just when you're living your life and you're paying attention to that, um, it's really not great to see. Like you start to see what you, you settle a little bit 
and you see what's really going on, and it's not so great. So if that happens for you, the best thing to do is to stop practicing and just shop. <laughs> and don't look at it. <laughs> yeah, just go buy stuff. Stay on the surface. Um, and um, uh, stop, stop looking at that. <laughs> because once you start to look at the quality of your heart, you start to see that it impacts more deeply than anything else. And then it becomes a place you want to spend your time. So one way of understanding these sequences of mindfulness is we're going more inward. We're going more inward. So now I just wanted to read to you how the Buddha gives his instructions on this section. Um, and I know this is a little more lecture style today, but this stuff's important to set the foundation for what we're doing for the next couple of days. So here's what the Buddha says. A monk knows the consciousness with lust as a mind with lust. A mind without lust as a mind without lust. That's pretty good, hey? A mind with hate as a mental state with hate. A heart without hate as a heart without hate. A mind with ignorance as a mind with ignorance. A mind without ignorance as a mind without ignorance. A shrunken state as a shrunken state. A distracted state as a distracted state. A developed state as a developed state. The undeveloped state as an undeveloped state. The state of consciousness with some other mental state superior to it as the state with something mentally higher. The state of consciousness with no other mental state superior as the state with nothing mentally higher. He goes on and on and on. An un so I'll just go quickly. An unconscious an unconcentrated state as an unconcentrated state. You know that. And a concentrated state as a concentrated state. A free state of mind as a free state of mind. And an unfree state of mind as an unfree state of mind. Did you catch all that? Yeah. We don't have to go through every single one. But I want to point out a few and what he's trying to get at here. So the first is, when you're experiencing lust, to know you're experiencing lust. When you experience lust, you've, oh, it's spring. Anybody notice this? So this is going to be lust season. It hasn't started for you already. Yeah. In lust, it feels so good to be alive. Your whole body is alive. And at first, there's something so exciting and pleasurable about it. But if you quiet down when lust is happening, which hopefully you're doing in your morning practice, you'll start to see that when you're caught in the grip of any kind of mental state, it's not that pleasant. So you're walking around and you're like, 
flowers, skin, because <laughs> people are, have skin again, <laughs> right? And everything is, have you noticed this? Yeah, it's all very exciting. And then um, you sit still and you notice, oh God, the mind is really focused on lust, any kind of lust. And then um, you realize that you're in the grip. And although the lust seemed really great, then you start to see any mental state that you're caught in after a while is not that great. And the most unethical decisions we make around sexuality, for example, are made when there's lust. Then the Buddha says, notice a mind that's contracted and notice a mind that's distracted and notice an expanded mind. So when you have a mind that's really, really contracted, has anyone had one of these lately? really contracted, just know, oh, look, it's a contracted mind. And when your mind is really distracted, I think this is a really, really good one. Notice your mind is really distracted. And this is the role play we're going to do around this. So is working with people who are like, but my mind is so distracted. So what do you do? Notice the mind that's so distracted. Notice the mind that's so distracted. So the distraction isn't in the way. You're noticing the mind that's distracted. Yes? I was just thinking about wearing glasses. Like when you talk about lust and seeing, it's like when you want to buy a new car, all you see is Honda Civics because that's what you're looking at. Yeah. It's like you have goggles or a lens on. And yes. that's what I'm wondering is that experiencing a certain state is like you're wearing glasses. Yeah. And then you notice, hey, this is actually discoloring yeah. what I'm looking at, or this is making things out of focus. Exactly. So do you actually take the glasses off, or do you just like wash them? First, or? you just know you're wearing the glasses. That's okay. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Oh, here are the lust glasses. Yeah. Okay. Well, so here's the cool thing, is that if you really, this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you really do, so if you, if you notice lust, and then you say, oh, lust is present. And you keep noticing how lust is present. You'll forget after a while, and you'll get lusty. Is that a word? Yeah. And then you notice again that lust is pre and you keep doing it. Something happens where the lust loses its power. It's almost like if you keep looking at it, it starts getting shy, and it wants to like go hide somewhere. Right? Just keep going, oh, lust, lust. Lust, and if you, you don't point it out, then it, it, it starts getting a foothold and finds ways of kind of like digging in enough that um, eventually it's just lust. And of course, we think, oh, lust is so amazing because it mostly feels so amazing, especially like if you've just been on the computer all day. And it's like, oh my god, I have a body, and like, wow. Yes, does this make sense? So do you think that that's the same effect that the healing tone has as well then? Labeling it, then it gets shy and it might go away instead of it being this ever-present yeah. reminder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's really important 
that in labeling less, words are important so that you're not saying, like, I am lustful, but there is lust. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you start to realize that, oh, wow, look how ingrained this habit is. I, so this is the whole point of the third foundation of mindfulness. You see, whoa, look at how ingrained all of this conceptualization is that I didn't even really see that. Right? It's like never, have, never ever having a massage. You've never had a massage. And one day you go for shiatsu. And you're like, whoa, that, this happened recently. So... I was in the airport in Salt Lake City uh, two weeks ago or whatever, and they had one of these massage, you know, a chair, uh, a chair massage things. Yeah. So I went and did it. Um, what else do you do on a layover? I don't know. But there was a guy beside me who was getting a, a massage, and he had never had a neck massage, ever. He was probably in his 50s. And he was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like this loud at that volume. Oh, my God. And he, and he was saying sentences like, is that all in my neck? Like, and like amazing, like he had just discovered that he had a body. He had just discovered he had a body. Yeah. Then that, that ended. And then the next guy who came on the chair beside me, uh, you know, you, you listen to all the conversations, right? He was a stunt actor. And he had been in Salt Lake City doing stunts. And he said, he was saying, oh yeah, every time I come to the airport right after my work, I always get a massage before I go back to LA. Right. Two totally different experiences of their body. So this is all to say, sometimes there's ways we're seeing the world and ways we're seeing our own experience that we don't even realize are constructed the way they're constructed because we've never looked from a place of stability and seen it. So that's why I'm just focusing on the last one now because it's spring and I get this, I have this thing where I live on an island, okay? And when I'm on the island, I try not to leave. So I was just home for like, I guess, two weeks without leaving the island. And um, my neighbor says, whenever you leave the island, you're going to get wantitis, she calls it. Yeah. And it's this weird thing. You're on the island. There's nothing to buy where I live. You can't buy anything. And then whenever I come to the city, I always notice in the first few hours, every store I walk by, I'm like, oh, I think I need some of those things, you know? Yeah. 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 So yesterday, I went to the Gap Kids to go get my son, my son doesn't have any clothes, um, to go get him, he, like he wanted underwear, some things. And I noticed like I couldn't stop. I was like, oh yeah, and we'll get socks and we'll get shirts and like maybe we'll get one size more. It was kind of, and I had to stop myself and be like, oh, this is also lust, right? I want him to look good and all the, he's got very ratty clothes right now. So. Not only that, can I tell you what else was in my mind? While I was getting clothes, I was thinking, when I get home, I'm going to take him to get a haircut. We're going to, you know, like I'm going to clean him up. <laughs> Island kids get kind of ratty looking. Michael. Yeah. Um, something not on ratty kids. Um, something that's come up a lot in some of the mindfulness classes I've done yeah. with friends and students and things and is that they, a lot of people get worried that mindfulness practice is going to 
made them become passive. Mm-hmm. Like somehow these these senses of lust for, for certain mm-hmm. things tell us about what we want and that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. And that by practicing it sort of like this shying away is actually mm-hmm. for them, like newcomers is a repression of things that they should be feeling. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know how to answer that when, when they ask me about yeah. that. Because I'm like, oh yeah, maybe maybe you are sort of overriding basic in a sense you are, you're overriding this sort of instinctual urge if you want something to go and get it and we live in a society that's based on if you want something and you go and get it mm-hmm. and you're successful mm-hmm. so it's sort of mm-hmm. yeah. 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 yeah it's a construct yeah I know it doesn't like obviously mindfulness does the opposite it doesn't create passivity it actually helps us become more engaged but I yeah. I struggle to yeah. To be able to explain that because it's quite a complex uh-huh. process. Yeah. Well, let's just leave the question open. And as the week develops, let's see if that's true. Does mindfulness make us more passive? Yeah. And also add to the equation like, we live in a time where because our communities are weak, our sense of self doesn't really come so much from our close tribe, it comes from shopping. And so that's why like when lefty people tell people not to shop, they don't hear it. Because when you tell people not to buy stuff, it goes into their sense of self. Like it challenges how they think about themselves. Like I was just reading in the paper about how, you know, the car companies are really threatened about car sharing, right? Because car sharing is really bad for car sales. So one of the things that car companies are doing is they're figuring out algorithms to reset their um, plants so that the assembly lines can make each car more individual. So when you go into the car dealership, you order a car and you individualize it tremendously, right? Like every detail on the car, you're going to be individualizing. So now they're building plants that can deal with this because the car companies realize that if you can sell a car to someone that's really, really individual and really like reflects them, like you close the door and you sit in the car and the environment is like more like your environment not what Hyundai says the environment should be. And if you personalize that so much, people aren't going to want to share cars. <laughs> because they're going to be really attached to their, their personal environment. Yeah, that's yeah. So wow. creepy. That's really that creepy. So it's like giving away, identifying with it, it's like you're not going to part with your car. You know? Exactly. Because it's a piece of you. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, so let, let, me, let me wrap up a little bit. I think we're on a tangent. All right. So let's sum up. Number one, mental states are not inherently fixed. Every mental state is fluid. And even though when you're caught in the grip of lust, it really feels fixed. Number two, you can hold mental states more lightly than you think.
Number three, all mental states are phenomena that arise in conditions. The spring, cherry blossoms, and people wearing less clothing is going to in influence your mind. Number four. Oh, I don't know. I all lost track because I was thinking about the cherry blossoms. All mental states arise in conditions, and they're not who you are. All mind states are phenomena. They're not who you are. Does that, did, did you catch all that? And number four, um, you can sculpt your attitude. You can train your attitude. And the punchline of all this, so those, those are the four kind of key points. But the punchline for all of it, which is the takeaway, um, is that most of us identify way too much with our moods. And I'm going to add to that just one more point that I'm thinking of right now, which is that as you get quieter, you're going to start to see that your mental states are not that interesting. <laughs> like, they're not that interesting. And that's what we're going to talk about on Wednesday. I think we're told that we are our moods. Yeah, for sure. You are an angry person. Yeah. You are a grumpy. You are a totally. Angry. Yeah. Yeah. And that they're interesting. Yeah. 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 I see that with kids all the time. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, it's safer for our society culture to label, isn't it? You know, label that child dyslexic or yeah. whatever, and then once they move themselves away from that label, people are incredibly uncomfortable, and they're no longer fitting what they have that fixed idea. Yeah. Really as a mother, here, it's been really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Feelings arise. And it's not just with kids, it's also like at work. Yeah. You hear even like in the workplace lines like, she's borderline. Yeah. yeah. Having no idea what that really is, yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I, um, I'm still quite involved in the party scene. Uh -huh. And I'll go out, and I haven't been out in a while, and people will be like, oh, meet my new friend, because I've been gone for be my new friend. Marina's a riot. Just wait till like you get to know her. And I'm sober now, and I'm like I'm not a riot like I used to be. And so I'm like, like <laughs> 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 funny, like on the spot, and it's just yeah. so interesting to receive that later. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm actually I'm not a riot. And I'm like, oh, you're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a. It's something that I find is a challenge as I get older. I more, I, I know who I am more, but I don't know what I'm like anymore. I can't describe yeah. it. I can't yeah. attach adjectives. I don't know if I'm a night owl or an early riser. I don't know if I'm an introvert or an extrovert. You're fluid. Ask me the next minute. You're fluid. Whatever. <laughs> no, but it's hard to. It's hard because people really always want you to define yourself. No, it's very reassuring to put yourself in a box and kind of just disorienting when you can't find the walls in the box. Yeah. What is it though to label me is to negate me? Like that also once you mm. create a label then you are no longer another label, right? So mm. you be you be night owl morning person. Okay, so can we switch gears? Oh one more comment. I don't I don't understand what the difference is between the first two. 
The first two which? Um, foundations mental mindfulness. states. No, mental states are fluid and you can hold states more lightly than you think. So the first one is just recognizing that when certain moods come in, um, they seem real. Mm -hmm. And they seem like who we are. Like we identify, like I am such and such. Or we do it with other people. Right? That person's an angry person, like you just the example that you gave. So just realizing that mental states are not inherently fixed. Okay? Now, based on that truth or that insight or that recognition, to start to see that you can hold those mental states more lightly because they're not fixed. They're changing, so you can just approach them a little more lightly. Do you know what I mean by that? Like just not hold so tight. Just not hold so tight. What's that? I feel like a more, it's with the practice, those mental states seem to come with more intensity. Yeah. And, and but now it just gives me more awareness to create like, there's, it's not like it's going to go away. It's yeah. just the ease that comes with that. Yeah. Like, that's what, I don't know how it works, how it works but the, mm -hmm. I, I fully believe that that's through mm -hmm. practice and just mm -hmm. watching. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and over time, exactly. Yeah, and over time you have the, it's closer to you, mm -hmm. this skill. It's more, e like you can reach for it more easily mm -hmm. to bring that kind of more lighter touch yeah. to what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. But I, for it, like, like with the practice, it is, it's almost like a bombardment of senses or sensory. Yeah. And then how do you navigate through that? But mm. now, I, after a month of solid practice, now yeah. you, it starts not like, oh, you know, this is, yeah. this is all, you yeah. know, I get it all, but it, I can feel it. Yeah, that's why I'm a little bit of a stickler for saying you should be practicing every day. Mm -hmm. Because when you have that mental state that's really like it's so hard to get on your cushion, like get on your cushion and, and look at that state and like investigate it a little more. And, but not with the attitude like, like whipping yourself or whatever. Or maybe you have that attitude and then like look at whipping yourself. Yeah. Like look at that. And, and the more you look at that, the less power that state has over you. And, the, and you get a little bit of distance. Okay. Sometimes so minimal. Yeah. So, um, when we finished up last, I'm trying to transition because I want to stay, stay, stay. So, uh, when we finished uh, last week we were together, we had groups of four or five? Five? And one person didn't have a turn to lead? Right? Okay. Is that right? Yeah. I can't remember. Okay, okay. so we're going to create groups of five, that same group again. And the person who didn't get a chance to lead is going to lead. Okay, that's you. <laughs> and um, so here's what I'd like you to do: um, introduce yourself to the group. Um, let them know that you're going to be teaching a mindfulness of breathing practice. Um, teach a mindfulness of breathing practice. Okay. Uh, let the practice be for how long should we do? 10 minutes. So mindfulness of breathing practice for 10 minutes. 
Do you want to have a, the little bell break in it, or do you want to just do 10 minutes? Ten minutes. Just 10 minutes? Yes. Okay, so you're going to lead mindfulness of breathing for 10 minutes, okay? Then, after the 10 minutes, you're going to ask your group some questions about what they noticed um, in their experience. The group is going to role play, and what they're going to describe is just, sorry, you're not going to role play. Yeah, you're going to role play. What you're going to role play is that your mind was really busy and you were noticing a lot of thinking and you were kind of off with those thoughts. And your job as the facilitator is to just keep saying, what was that like? What did you notice? What was happening in your body? Was it pleasant or unpleasant? All the stuff we've covered so far. Okay? So um, we're teaching mindfulness of breathing. The reception we're going to get after the practice is around busy mind, lots of thinking. And during that time, you're going to keep reminding people that they can bring mindfulness to that thinking and not go off with it. Is that so simple? So simple. And then I'll ring the bell and you can have a few minutes for um, discussion about how that went. So the whole thing should be 20 minutes or so. Yeah, any questions? Okay.